0: Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Today's guest is Kate Watson. Her debut novel, Sinking Mansfield, came out May 16th, 2017, with the companion novel Shoot the Moon to come in 2018. Kate is also a contributor to Eric Smith's Welcome Home Anthology. Kate joined me to talk about her unusual route to finding an agent and knowing when to stop working on the sequel to a book that isn't getting any traction while querying. Trading Faces by Julia DeVillers and Jennifer Roy, identical twin sisters Emma, the smart one, and Peyton, the popular one, start a brand new school and secretly switch places. They find out playing a new role in life can be fun and disastrous. What does it mean to be true to yourself and find your own identity? So I always start out with asking our guests about their agent hunt and the querying process. So how long were you querying? How many trunk books did you have? How many queries you sent? Anything at all. Just something to uh, let aspiring writers know that those of us who have achieved publication understand the struggle and also that it is survivable.
1: I love that question. I definitely did some writing before my debut novel came out. I've always loved fantasy. I loved portal trilogies. (laughs) I grew up on Chronicles of Narnia, you know, Harry Potter, that kind of thing. It was probably late 2000s when I started writing and I worked on a portal fantasy book that I absolutely fell in love with. And I ended up thinking, you know, I should really finish this entire trilogy. Because, you know, of course, that's all an agent wants to hear is that you have a a finished portal fantasy. I spent a few years finishing this trilogy, and it was, you know, 300,000-something words. And I started querying agents. I was able to get some requests, but nothing progressed past that point. So I ended up going out onto the Absolute Right forums and having people just shred my query and just make it so much stronger and Then I came back and queried some more, and I still was getting requests, but I didn't get anything beyond that. I want to say it was like around 2010 or 2011 when a bunch of agents and editors were coming back from BEA and they were being interviewed for what things they were sick of. (laughs) And to a person they said, portal fantasies. They said, we do not want any more of these things. Instead of doing the smart thing and just trunking this trilogy, I decided that I was going to be the clever person to really turn these tropes on their heads. And so I started going back through and trying to subvert everything. And But it turned out after another 20 queries, I realized they still don't want portal trilogies. It was about 60 total. I decided that's enough. I think we're done here. I haven't looked back. I was glad that I was able to get past that point. From there, when I wrote Seeking Mansfield, I wrote that in 2013. And it took a few months to write it. And it felt so different than the trilogy had. I had a really good critique partners. I had them read it and rip it to shreds. And then I ended up entering Pitch Madness. I was picked on a team and I hadn't actually submitted any queries for this novel yet because I had tried to get everything ready for Pitch Madness. And I ended up getting a bunch of requests from that and it felt so great. But while that was happening, I actually, my, my sister and I you know, always message each other a thousand times a day. And so she had been messaging me on Facebook and said, hey, why haven't you called me back? And so I said, I'm just working on my query for this pitch madness contest. And so while all that was happening, one of her closest friends actually was a literary agent. And I had sort of passingly known that, but she primarily represented horror and comic books. So I thought, well, I would never expect to query her, but she actually ended up seeing our thread on Facebook and said, hey, why don't you send me the query and I'll help you polish it up. And when she read it, she came back to me and said, can I actually read the entire story? And I thought, Oh sure. You know, whatever. Like you're, you'll give me great feedback. You're my sister's friend. No problem. She ended up saying, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I want to represent you. Like that's literally what never happens. You never hear this happening. Some agents have just requested it through pitch madness. Cause that was all happening in the background. She said, okay, but I really want this. So I got back to them. A few of them liked it, but said, I would want you to revise and resubmit. Just after talking to a few of them, I just felt like this other agent, my, my sister's friend, oddly enough, just felt like the right person to go with. That was it. So I didn't actually send an official query for Seeking Mansfield, but I had certainly put in my, my due time before that.
0: It's really nice to hear about someone who, to be blunt, made the same mistakes I did. I also was writing um, a book of my heart. It was actually the first YA novel I ever attempted. It was an urban fantasy, which, of course, had its heyday and had passed at the time that I began writing it, and much like you, it was a planned trilogy. I was so into it, and I loved it so much. Much like you, I thought, it is impossible for me to frame it in standalone with series potential the way the story works i definitely need to have at least two possibly three so i had this finished i felt decent book with an unresolved ending and so it was impossible to pitch it as a standalone and i'm like well nobody wants to read that knowing that the second one isn't ready so i will start writing the second book which as you know is a waste of time such a waste <laughs> I was writing the sequel to the book that no one wanted to represent. And I was probably 10,000, maybe 20,000 words deep in that sequel when I realized that this was futile, that this was a waste of my time, and that I needed to come up with something fresh. And that's when I started writing Not a Drop to Drink. Nice. It's really good advice, and I don't think it's something that has come up on the podcast before, that if you are working on something that is a series and you're not getting any traction on your first one, it hurts, but you need to let it go and find something else that's going to get you a firm footing. And you can always work on your series in your downtime, in your book-of-my-heart time. I have reworked that first Urban Fantasy Probably, I'm going to say 10, 12 times. And I have it in a position where it is publishable. And my agent read it recently and was like, yeah, Mindy, this is really good. But the genre has not resurfaced yet and we're just going to have to put it on hold. And I'm like, okay, cool. That's just the way it is sometimes. Sometimes the book of your heart, you're just waiting for that opportunity to show itself again.
1: When I look back, I don't regret the time that I spent on it because I think in some ways it was really a crash course in learning how to write and how not to write. You know, I did so much research as I was going through revisions and I learned so much about tropes. I had actually never heard the word trope before when I started it, but when I had read this BEA article and they, when they were talking about it and they were saying something about a Mary Sue trope, I thought, what the heck is a Mary Sue trope? I didn't know. I'd never read fan fiction or anything like that. So I went out and found that tropes website and I ended up spending just hours and hours learning about everything and I really can't say that I regret it just because I was able to learn so much through it and I put so much effort into learning more about the craft from that. And I think if I had written Seeking Mansfield, it would have really set me at a disadvantage because even if this one had, had sold without all the things that I had learned, I would be just a step behind. I would be having to play catch up in so many different ways for future stories. Not the best use of my time, but I still am grateful for it
0: absolutely each book even those unpublished ones are learning experiences i had 4 unpublished books before i wrote one that got published and i became a better writer without exception those 4 in the state that they were in at the time were not publishable and the fifth one's the one that was even those failed novels we call them failed but it's just part of the process
1: and i think they embolden me at least, I, th- I think us maybe even too, but knowing that you can put that much effort in something and then just put it away and move on, there's something kind of freeing about that, or at least there was for me.
0: No, totally. It's like breaking up and moving on.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like this was a toxic relationship book.
0: You we gotta yeah, move on. I'm from done you. with you. I'll see you at the reunion. <laughs> exactly. Up next why Mansfield Park resonated with Kate more so than other Jane Austen novels, the different ways in which women can exhibit strength, and how to use your existing connections online to help promote a quiet book. Looking for a dark Halloween read? Check out Among the Shadows, 13 stories of darkness and light. Even the lightest hearts have shaded corners to hide the black thoughts that come at night. Experience the darker side of YA as 13 authors explore the places that others prefer to leave among the shadows. Include stories by Beth Revis, Gretchen McNeil, Justina Ireland, Demetria Luneta, and yours truly, Mindy McGinnis. The ebook is on sale for only 99 cents. Your debut, Sinking Mansfield, is a contemporary retelling of Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. I was a lit major. And Mansfield Park is not one that usually comes up a lot in. Let's talk about Welcome Home. This is an anthology that you and I have short stories together. It's titled Welcome Home, a collection that explores the emotional complexities of adoption. Yeah. Neither one of us really profited in a meaningful financial way from this project. We were paid $100 each for our stories. I still felt compelled to participate in this project because my grandmother was adopted. I remember as a child, my sister and I, we were always pestering her for orphanage stories. She was a orphan in a time when they still had orphanages. And she would tell us these amazing stories about things that happened in the orphanage. In most cases, pretty brutal. She was not there long, thank God. She was adopted. There was a set of six children. She was the only one one that was adopted. The rest aged out. I had a connection to adoption. I know you had a connection to adoption. And so we both felt the need to participate in this anthology. So if you could talk a little bit about how being part of such a project is beneficial in other ways than financial for an author.
1: This is definitely the thing I'm most passionate about. I think I told my husband after I finished the short story and after Eric accepted it, who is, I mean, as anyone knows, the most gracious human being alive, my heavens. That's right. But I told my husband, I said, if I never accomplish anything else in my writing career, I will be happy that I was able to do this story. I became a mom through adoption. I have two kids who were adopted at birth. They are the greatest blessings in my life. I was raised by a stepmom. I have an adopted cousin I have multiple adopted nieces and nephews and cousins, in fact. Uh, Adoption's just all over my family. My husband's grandpa was adopted and he has adoption on his side too. So it's just always been a part of my life and there's never been a time where it has felt strange to me or felt like it was some kind of other. We talk so much about own voices as we need to and this is one area that is very, a very personal own voices thing to me. When I found out that Eric was doing this, he'd actually already posted that he was doing it, he posted it on Twitter and said, you know, I'm still looking for some more short stories. And so I looked for literally every connection that he and I could ever possibly have. Turns out that we share an agent. I reached out to him and I said, I have to be in this and here's why. And I told him every possible connection to adoption. And he he just said, okay, well, write a story. And if it works, then I'll include it. If it doesn't, maybe we'll still feature it on a Tumblr site or something like that. I needed to be part of this because I needed my kids to be able to grow up in a world where their mom had written an adoption story, but also where there was just a collection of stories that normalized their experience that has just dozens of different kids who were adopted and their stories range from having nothing to do with adoption other than the fact that the kid was adopted, which is real life, right? Some people don't struggle with their adoption story and some people go through life without that being something that weighs on them. Other people don't. And the fact that that anthology covers that entire spectrum was so, so important to me. From what it profited us, you know, from a financial perspective, like you said, nothing, right? And I didn't even know we were going to get paid the $100. I just knew I needed in.
0: And we should say here that Eric Smith, who is an agent and a writer in his own right, is the editor who put together this anthology and came up with the idea in the first place. He approached some of us that he either knew had a adoption connection in their lives or he admired their work like in my case he just reached out and was like I love your writing do you happen to have any type of adoption connection in your life or a story that you would like to write about and I was like my god yes I actually do and so Eric of course deserves all the credit on this anthology which is a wonderful, wonderful book. I'm very proud of it. He
1: is just such a special person. He he just spreads love and welcoming everywhere he
0: goes. Hey, you know, they don't have to be physically strong. Yeah. Emotional resilience is probably the best strength anyone can have. Yes, exactly. I do genealogy. And my German side, very thoroughly documented, and I found a woman in Germany... And it was the 1500s, and there was a woman who had 15, I believe it was 15 children, and she outlived all but two of them. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, she buried 13 children, some of them as adults, but she did bury 13 children. And I set up the timeline, and at one point, she was pregnant, a child in the household died, a teen in the household died in the same week, within three days of each other. She gave birth to the baby, and then the baby died two days later. Oh, my gosh. You can surmise that there was a sickness in the household. And this woman kept going. And I just imagine her caring for these children. She probably had, at that point, eight or nine in the household with her. Lost two within a week, one of them being one of the older children that more than likely was helping her with household tasks, because it was a female, Delivered a baby. She's caring for sick children while nine months pregnant. Delivers a baby. The baby dies within a day. And she is more than likely probably still caring for other children. Buried three of her kids in a week. And kept going. Kept going, you know. Lived for 30 more years. Buried. Buried more children, just incredible. And, and I like to tell that story because when we talk about strong female characters, usually we want to talk about how they're breaking the mold and doing things that are considered more masculine or stepping forward or giving a voice. And those are all great things, but this woman was a German housewife in the 1500s. No one would ever say that she was not strong. For her, just tending a household and having children was the role she was made to fit in that time period, and it was the hardest job there was. She did it, just the most tragic story I have ever heard. She lived into her 80s, which in the 1500s, I'm sure, was insane. This was not a woman that was challenging norms. This was not a woman that was standing up to be counted. This was just a woman that was doing what women were supposed to do. And she was strong as shit. So that's the kind of thing that I like to bring up whenever people want to talk about strong female characters. Strength is present in so many ways and in so many different avenues that I think it's really important that those quiet ways, like you're talking about, are also recognized. Because some of us aren't the kind of person that is going to make waves and stand out. And you don't have to in order to be strong. I think that's an important thing for, for females today to hear.
1: I think we see so many of these really strong extroverted characters. Or we see the ones who, like you said, are, are breaking this mold, who are taking on all these masculine traits. And I just don't see why that's any more impressive than anything else. Particular, I mean, the story that you're sharing, my heavens, talk about resilience or persistence. One of my go-to rants in panels, the idea of issue books. I love issue books they serve such an important purpose. I don't love that they're always called issue books though, because I think when you're going through something, your life doesn't feel like an issue life, right? It's just life. You're expected to still go on. And even though your mom has passed away, even though you've lost a sibling, even though you're recovering from an assault, you still have to eat Breakfast and and shower and I mean of course not everyone is in a mental place to be able to do that. You still have homework and you still have siblings that you have to take care of. There are still things that you're going on for, and sometimes you're going on for for other people and you're and your, and that's giving you some kind of meaning. And sometimes you're just finding that in yourself. Yeah, it was important to me when writing Seeking Mansfield that I show someone who had a trauma past, but. That abuse doesn't define her. It's part of her story, and it certainly has led her up to being the way she is in some ways. But there's still that idea that you can overcome and that you can be hopeful and that you can dream and and want something, even when you've been pushed down. Someone's tried to force you into this tiny little box. You know, you can still be bigger than that, even if it's really quiet, even if it's not this really big, beautiful, showy thing. Like you said, just being able to persist and continue, go forth. There's something so impressive about that.
0: There definitely is. And I agree with you that when you're going through what could be an after school special movie, you're still moving through your life. You're still having to make food for yourself or for others. You're still having to make the bed and do the laundry and sweep the floor. And those quiet, small things take so much energy It really wipes you out to keep moving through grief, through pain, through trauma, to just do the little things that continue to mark you as human. That's actually the real challenge. It's not splashy, so people don't necessarily want to watch that movie or read that book. Which actually leads me into the next question. Because classic novel retellings are popular in YA, but they can be risky because they're considered quiet which depends on word of mouth rather than a splashy hook or a big marketing plan to draw in an audience. So do you have any pitching or marketing advice for those listeners who have more quiet tales?
1: That's a great question. And I think the way you phrase it is really, really good. These books are typically a lot quieter. I think the key from my perspective is to really find who your audience is. Don't make any apologies for it. Anyone would love to have their book be as big of a deal as One of Us is Lying or Thug or any of these books that are very deservedly getting all of this attention. But there's nothing wrong with writing a book that you love, that you're proud of, that is going to make these smaller circles. and, and And that's really it. So for me, when I was looking to find people to do, you know, a blog tour or reviewers, I really focused on people who do a lot of stuff with Jane Austen retellings, you know, either in the young adult world or in the adult world. Jane Austen fans in particular are just simply drawn to Jane Austen books. It doesn't matter what sort of age group of a retelling it is. I mean, if there's a picture book about Jane Austen, I buy it. (laughs) you got to find your audience and don't apologize for it. Don't feel like you need to be trying to reach out and make sure that every single person in the world hears about your book. Of course, if that's what you want, make your marketing plan just whatever you want it to be, whatever's going to satisfy you. But when you find your people They, I think, often become your best advocates, and they typically have their own people that they can sort of spread it on to. So like you said, that word of mouth, but if you are not targeting the right audience in the first place, then the right people who would want to advocate for you and really support you aren't going to be the ones who've read your book.
0: I think it's really interesting that you were reaching out to adult audiences as well, which makes a lot of sense because you're talking about classic literature. You're talking about a much-loved classic author and, in many ways, a feminist icon. So how did you go about finding those blogs? It sounds like you moved in those circles already. Can you talk a little bit about using those contacts that you have already cultivated just even in your personal life because we do write to our own interests it's really cool that you were able to utilize a network that you had already participated in as a consumer and to turn it into a marketing advantage
1: yeah that's exactly right on twitter i follow a lot of darcy forever types of blogs your big pride and prejudice or just jane austen fanatics uh, like myself knowing that i already followed so many of these people just to be able to reach out to them and say hey I love your blog. I loved this book that you recommended a couple of weeks ago or months ago. I love this piece that you featured. Some people had actually just been rereading Mansfield Park interestingly enough. I was able to say, hey, I have a Mansfield Park retelling. Would you be interested in reading this and interviewing me for it or featuring this book on your blog? I'm sure you know this exact thing better than I do, but when you find those people who have your same interests, they're just so thrilled to find something else that they can fall in love with. And they're so generous in their desire to love a book, I think. And not to say they're not discerning, of course, because they're all obviously very discerning. It was really just this act of love to be able to reach out to these people that I already had nice relationships with or that I had wanted to have a nice relationship with and just be able to to sincerely say, I've loved these things that you've done. I would be honored if you would include me. There's some phenomenal young adult bloggers. In so many ways, the young adult world is just head and shoulders above the other elements of, of the writing world. A couple of people ended up requesting my book early on. They messaged me and they were so lovely about it. Christy with YA and Wine, who she's, she blogs out of Utah. She is just such a delight. And she was one of my biggest supporters right from the get go. And so Early on, I asked her, too, you know, is there anyone that you would recommend? And she had a couple of recommendations, too. I think just having sincere network, not necessarily casting out this really wide net, that's not something that would work for me or my story, certainly. Just finding those sincere connections was definitely the most helpful thing that I did.
0: That's really cool. I want to talk for a minute about blogs and blogging networks because it's interesting to me how greatly... The world, the online world has changed since... I published originally. My first book came out in 2013, but I was active online as early as 2010, which is when I got my agent. And so I decided to get out there and get the Twitter account and start a blog and do all the things that I do today. I don't recommend that approach for new writers now. Obviously a Twitter, sure. Facebook is questionable. Blogging in particular, in a lot of ways, it's kind of dead unless you already have an established blog, it's not a good idea to go out and throw up another, Hey, I'm an author blog, unless you have a really, really, really unique angle. You wrote a book about fly fishing and your blog is all about how to make your own flies. Like, I mean, okay, cool. So often when I have new writers come to me and say, how do I get a platform online? How do I start? I usually tell them don't start blogging because if you didn't get on that platform at least six or seven years ago, it's too late. It is more beneficial to new writers to utilize other people's blogs, like you said, instead of starting your own, to put yourself out there and volunteer. Because believe me, as someone that's been running a blog since 2010, we love it when people are like, hey, I would love to contribute to your blog or would you like to interview me? I want to participate because that's less content for us to produce. You're borrowing our audience. We're giving you our space. On that angle... If you could talk a little bit about blogs, do you have a blog? And interaction with blogs like from a consumer point of view, because this is something, like I said, people come to me asking and that is my advice. And I'm not saying I'm right, but it's my answer.
1: That matches up really well with my experience. I've tried a couple of different times starting a blog and it's just never been something that I've been consistent enough with and I've never had much of an audience. I had a personal blog, years ago where I wrote about my journey with infertility and then adoption. And that actually was, it had a little niche, but it had nothing to do with writing. So I've let that go. That just sort of stands as almost like a journal for me now in trying to start up my author website. I did blog just a couple of times, but I mean, it really just feels like you're talking to yourself. And so now the only time I'll write something out there is if it's simply just of interest to me. (laughs) So I'm very self-serving blogger, which means I don't do it almost ever. So, yeah, I totally agree. I think it's just so late to try to get into that game. Some people are doing it, I think, really well. There are a couple of new authors who've made it a point to just go out there and interview much bigger names who are established, people who've been doing this for a long time and who have really good audiences. But if I were to try that, it would just be, it would be so derivative. (laughs) I don't have any original ideas and I don't know how to necessarily even make a splash. Like you've said, people have been so gracious and so accepting. They've been just lovely. And so, yeah, reaching out to the people who have audiences that would be similar enough to yours, I think is the right way to go.
0: Also, blogging takes so much time. Sunday is when I prep the blog for the whole week. Typically, I'm posting anywhere from four to five posts for the week. It takes me most of the afternoon to get everything set up. I try to do the whole week in, a, in one afternoon, but it takes me most of the afternoon. Because this podcast is also an extension of the blog, I work on this, and it posts on Mondays at 5 a.m., I usually am working on the final touches inserting music and the final editing and getting it Uploaded and ready to go for the morning. So my entire Sunday is blog related. I don't make any money off it. I actually probably at this point I'm probably no, I'm not probably. I am losing money on the podcast because I have to pay for uh, hosting and distribution and all that stuff and the software to do this to talk with you right now. But I like doing it. I'm gonna do it for a year. I started this podcast last March and I paid for hosting for a year. So I'm gonna do it for a year and we'll see where it goes. But Even having established myself back in 2010, I had an audience that moved with me to my blog because I was a moderator at a writer's forum called Agent Query Connect, and I had been on that site for years, and I had people that knew I knew what I was talking about when it came to the industry, when it came to query critiques, when it came to anything to have to do with the publishing world, I knew what I was talking about. Mostly due to my experience in that community. And I was a moderator in that community. So when I started Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, I immediately had 30, 40, 50 followers, which is good to just as soon as I set it up and I was like, hey, guys, I started a blog. I immediately had people follow me over, which is great. But that was seven years ago. And it has always been a goal of mine to have a 1,000 followers in my little square with my Google Friend Connect blog followers marked. And I'm checking right now. This was seven years ago, and I have 980. I'm 20 short, guys. If you want to pop on over to the blog and follow me, i would been waiting seven years to get that four digits on there. I get good traffic, and the blog is known, and I enjoy doing it. But like I said, it is something that I continue doing because I like to. It's certainly a uh, time suck and definitely not a moneymaker, but I like doing it, and I do think that the blogging community, we want to help. That was my whole idea with the blog, with the podcast, is just creating space for other people to grow their audiences, and obviously my own as well, but for me, and I think it's just part of my librarianship continuing to come through, is that I want other people to have a space to talk about their work and to share their work. And I don't know, I guess, like I said, that's just me still holding on to my librarianship and being like, check out this book. Totally check it out.
1: <laughs> you know I'm sure you discover a lot of things too from that. I'm sure you're at the, the front end of so many of these novels that end up being huge bestsellers and stuff. Because I mean, I knew about your blog before I ever had a book deal. You were one of the people who just had advice or had such compelling interviews with authors. When you find people who are actually giving a service, you really do want to become loyal to them. And, you know, I want to be loyal to you just because you've been very lovely and welcoming to new young adult authors. And I know it's not just me. So that's the type of thing that does really breed this, the sense of belonging. It's really nice being a new author and knowing, oh, wow, there are already established authors who want to help. It's almost mind blowing. What other career can you get into where you can say that that's the case?
0: Not many, not many. And that is part of the reason why I established the blog in the first place was because I had writers who were agented and were actually already published that I met on Agent Query Connect. They weren't necessarily YA authors, but one of them was Sophie Parano, who writes Adult Historical. She's been a guest here on the podcast before. And she was like, yes, what are your questions? Let me help you. And, you know, for no reason whatsoever, I was just this perfect stranger that showed up on this forum and saw that she was agented and that she had a book coming out. And I'm like, okay, this is a person that knows what they're doing. I'm going to ask you a question. And she was so welcoming and so lovely, but also, like, no bullshit. Like, she tore apart my query, absolutely slayed it, which it needed. That person and that approach was so helpful to me. I would not be where I am today if it weren't for that community and for the already published and agented authors on there that helped me. So when I was like, okay, I'm going to start a blog and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do for others what these a handful of people did for me. I guess I have a small addiction to my own blog. I love working on my blog. No, thank you. I enjoy doing it. Oh, and like all the time. It never fails. I had two books coming out this year and I was like, okay... Mindy, you're going to have to start managing your time a little bit better. What are you going to do? What's going to go? Something's got to go. Should the blog go? And because I have been doing the same things, like recycling the same interviews, always with new guests, but I'm always like using the same templates. I was like, you know, you need to freshen this up a little bit. So here's your question. You're either going to kill it and pull the plug on the blog, or you're going to extend and start a podcast. Which is it going to be? And I'm like, how did I get here from something has to go? (laughs) And it never fails that whenever I'm questioning, is the blog a good use of my time, I get an email from someone that says, you critiqued my query and I signed with my agent today. Or you answered this question for me and my book comes out today and thank you so much. And I'm like, okay, that's why I'm doing it. I like being that person for others. And I wanted to say, too, to your question about being on the forefront of maybe books before they actually break. I interviewed Lee Bardugo when Shadow and Bone came out and like nobody knew who she was. It was you know it was not a big deal. So I have an interview with Lee Bardugo on my blog from before she was Lee Bardugo, you know? So I, I always think that's that's really cool.
1: That's a legit like I was ground floor guys. You get to ride that for the rest of your life.
0: <laughs> Coming up, how personal connections made both Kate and I part of Eric Smith's Welcome Home anthology and how emotional return can be more rewarding than financial. Let's talk about Welcome Home. This is an anthology that you and I have short stories together. It's titled Welcome Home, a collection that explores the emotional complexities of adoption. Yeah. Neither one of us really profited in a meaningful financial way from this project. We were paid $100 each for our stories. I still felt compelled to participate in this project because my grandmother was adopted. I remember as a child, my sister and I, we were always pestering her for orphanage stories. She was a orphan in a time when they still had orphanages, and she would tell us these amazing stories about things that happened in the orphanage, in most cases pretty brutal. She was not there long, thank God. She was adopted. There was a set of six children. She was the only one that was adopted. The rest aged out. I had a connection to adoption, I know you had a connection to adoption, and so we both felt the need to participate in this anthology. So if you could talk a little bit about how being part of such a project is beneficial in other ways than financial for an author.
1: This is definitely the thing I'm most passionate about. I think I told my husband after I finished the short story and after Eric accepted it, who is, I mean, as anyone knows, the most gracious human being alive, my heavens. That's right. But I told my husband, I said, if I never accomplish anything else in my writing career, I will be happy that I was able to do this story. I became a mom through adoption. I have two kids who were adopted at birth. They are the greatest blessings in my life. I was raised by a stepmom. I have an adopted cousin. I have multiple adopted nieces and nephews and cousins, in fact. Uh, Adoptions just all over my family. My husband's grandpa was adopted and he has adoption on his side too. So it's just always been a part of my life and there's never been a time where it has felt strange to me or felt like it was some kind of other. We talk so much about own voices as we need to. And this is one area that is very, a very personal own voices thing to me. When I found out that Eric was doing this, he'd actually already posted that he was doing it. He posted it on Twitter and said, you know, I'm still looking for some more short stories. And so I looked for literally every connection that he and I could ever possibly have. Turns out that we share an agent. I reached out to him and I said, I have to be in this and here's why. And I told him every possible connection to adoption. And he he just said, okay, well, write a story. And if it works, then I'll include it. If it doesn't, maybe we'll still feature it on a Tumblr site or something like that. I needed to be part of this because I needed my kids to be able to grow up in a world where their mom had written an adoption story, but also where there was just a collection of stories that normalized their experience that has just dozens of different kids who were adopted and their stories range from having nothing to do with adoption other than the fact that the kid was adopted, which is real life, right? Some people don't struggle with their adoption story. And some people go through life without that being something that weighs on them. Other people don't. And the fact that that anthology covers that entire spectrum was so, so important to me. From what it profited us, you know, from a financial perspective, like you said, nothing, right? And I didn't even know we were going to get paid the $100. I just knew I needed in.
0: And we should say here that Eric Smith, who is an agent and a writer in his own right, is the editor who put together this anthology and came up with the idea in the first place. He approached some of us that he either knew had a adoption connection in their lives or he admired their work like in my case he just reached out and was like I love your writing do you happen to have any type of adoption connection in your life or a story that you would like to write about and I was like my god yes I actually do and so Eric of course deserves all the credit on this anthology which is a wonderful, wonderful book. I'm very proud of it. He is
1: just such a special person. He, he just spreads love and welcoming everywhere he goes.
0: Finally, NaNoWriMo, how this program pushes us to begin and finish projects or just produce words on the page in the month of November. I want to talk a little bit about NanoRiMo National Novel Writing Month because last year was actually the first year I ever participated in it. I've been aware of it, obviously, for a long time, but I never participated in it until I had to write on an insane deadline for Given to the Earth, the sequel to my fantasy, Given to the Sea, my critique partner— said, you know what? Make it a nano project, and that will make you get it done. And I nanoed for the first time last year, and I really enjoyed it. So if you could please tell our listeners more about what NaNoWriMo is, how you find it helpful as a writer, and how they can participate.
1: Absolutely. I love NaNo. NaNoWriMo is short for National Novel Writing Month, Authors all over the world, writers all over the world, will commit these 30 days of November to write 50,000 words of a novel. So the novel doesn't necessarily have to be completed. The idea is that you start the novel on November 1st and that by the end of November you've written these 50,000 words at least. There is just a type of energy around the month of November that is unlike any other month of the year for me. Even though it's a really busy time, right, you have holidays coming up and there are so many things to get done and traveling for Thanksgiving or whatever it might be. But there's just this excitement and there's that sense of community, which we've already talked about a, a few different times. But the sense of community around Nano is so strong and so exciting. The entire world of writers is encouraging you to be your best, to be faster, to accomplish this phenomenal goal. And it really does help. It makes such a huge difference in being able to accomplish it. Huge NaNoWriMo fan, and I will be doing Nano again this year.
0: I am definitely going to be doing NaNo, and like Kate said, it is worthwhile just to produce those words because you have this community behind you. Everyone's in the same place. Everyone is trying to accomplish the same goal, and there's a progress bar that they set up for you for your particular project on the site, and it is amazing how much you want to fill that progress bar. They give you something very simple. They give you a visual and you're like, oh, I got to fill that bar up, you know? (laughs) And it just, it does amazing things for you. So last year I was not beginning a project, but I was finishing one. The given to the earth was, I believe it ended up being almost 100,000 words. So I was trying to finish the project. I credit it with me hitting my deadline for that particular project. This year, I'm more than likely, at the pace that I'm going, will be also finishing a project, but I think that using nano will give me an excellent opportunity to not fall back and rest on my laurels as soon as I finish this project. I'll probably be finishing in mid-November, and then I will need to just be like, okay, you finished that book and you're gonna wake up tomorrow morning and you're gonna work on something else because you're nanoing. You're writing 50,000 words in the month, which is 1,600-something a day. So you have a certain goal to hit daily, and it's a totally doable goal. And you don't have to do it every day. Like, if you skip a day, then the next day you're writing twice that, and your little bar will tell you what you need to write in order to stay on track. So you can finish a novel— And then you can jump into writing some short stories or start a new novel. It can be a great way to start a story. It can be a great way to finish a novel. It can be a great way to just crack out a short story every day. I mean, you have so much freedom in what projects you are going to approach. And we should say it's all free. NaNoWriMo. N-A-N-O-W-R-I-M-O. org, And you set up an account, which is free. And just for those of you that maybe aren't familiar with how to get your word count, they actually do have a uh, little box that you can just cut and paste your work for the day into and it'll count it for you. Or you can work within the site. You can be working right there and it'll keep track of your word count for you. What I do is when I am writing, I just use Word. And I copy-paste what I've written that day. If I'm working on an already begun project, I'll copy-paste what I wrote for the day, open up a new document, dump it in there, and it'll give me your word count down at the bottom And so I know what I did for the day, and then I can enter that on the NaNo website. I freely admit, like you were saying, the things you don't know. When I first started writing, I would count my words. I would be touching the screen. One, two... Oh, my God.
1: I totally remember doing that, and it was very, very absurd to think of now.
0: It's it's so funny. No, you, you don't have to do that, guys. So you don't have to count your words. You don't have to do that. Absolutely check out NaNoWriMo. I actually, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I was always resistant to it because I didn't want to have to write. I was like, no, I need to be inspired to write. And that can be true, but I have found inspiration can be manufactured. That may sound against the grain, but it's true.
1: It really is one of those things where perspiration can actually trump inspiration if you just put forth the effort.
0: I agree. I agree. So, what's up next on your publishing schedule? The companion novel to
1: Seeking Mansfield. It continues the story of one of the other characters, so it's it definitely stands alone, but it does share a lot of the characters. It comes out February 6th of 2018 from Flux and it's called Shoot the Moon. It is a loose retelling of Great Expectations, Great Expectations meets the 90s poker movie Rounders.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm there.
1: It's exactly what teens want to read today, oddly enough. You know, they really mm-hmm. want those two things because, of course, all teens are familiar with Great Expectations and Rounders, right? So,
0: <laughs> And Rounders, yeah, of course.
1: Yeah. So that's, what's coming up for me. So I have a book about a teen gambling addict and his attempts to break out of the fact that he's in denial more so than recovery. It has some political intrigue to it. And there's a mafia connection. And it turns out that when you research the mafia, the NSA does not come after you. I was really relieved.
0: Good tip. Why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you online on your social media? Okay,
1: so I am on Twitter and Instagram as Kate Watson, YA. So Kate Watson, young adult, is what the YA stands for. Mm-hmm. Some people have thought it was Kate Watson, yeah, but yeah. I'm not quite that excited. <laughs> yeah, not quite that <laughs> excited about myself. And then my website is
0: katewatsonbooks.com. Very cool, very cool. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, and thanks for being such a great advocate for young adult
0: authors everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis, music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash writer, writer, pants on fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist.